This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. World War II Radio Podcast. Today we have the CBS News of the World from the morning of October 6th, 1942. It includes updates on the war from New York, London, Washington, and Moscow. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And be sure to visit our website at brickpicklemedia.com slash podcasts, where you can find links to past episodes as well as the books featured in our podcasts. So thanks for listening. Enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. CBS World News brings you the early morning reports of its correspondents at home and abroad. Here are the highlights of the biggest news received up to 8 a.m. Eastern Wartime, Tuesday, October 6th. Russians make new gain northwest of Stalingrad. Hold lines within city. British bombers attack targets in Germany overnight. Churchill refuses in Commons to make a new statement on aid to Russia. Australians continue advance up south slope of mountains in New Guinea. Now here is Harry Marble and the news. Before calling in London, here's the latest news from the New Guinea front. Australian troops have taken two villages within three or four miles of the Owen Stanley Pass and are continuing their advance up the south slope toward the mountain gap. It's believed the Japs are likely to retreat through the pass to the north slope, where they're expected to make a major stand. So far, the main bodies of the two opposing forces have not met. In support of the Australian land drive, Allied planes continue to blast at enemy supply lines and airfields. Twelve tons of bombs were dropped among runways of the Jap airdrome at Rabaul, New Britain, and other bombers carried out raids on shipping off Buna, the Jap base on New Guinea's north coast. Jap fighters came up to intercept our planes for the first time in over a month. Seven enemy aircraft were shot down against the loss of one flying fortress and one medium bomber. And now let's hear from Columbia's correspondents in important world centers. First, across the Atlantic to the British capital. We take you to CBS London, Bill Downs reporting. Prime Minister Churchill did what everyone expected him to do about Joseph Stalin's second front statement. Exactly nothing. Answering questions in the House of Commons this morning whether the government intended to make a statement concerning the Stalin letter, Mr. Churchill said that he had carefully read and considered the statement. He then added that he did not believe a statement from His Majesty's government was called for at the present time. A Labour member then pressed the Prime Minister for amplification, asking Mr. Churchill if there was a closest integration in staff matters between Russia and Britain. Mr. Churchill emphasized that he had nothing to add. I would strongly advise, he said, that the House not press these matters unduly at a period which is certainly significant. What the Prime Minister meant by this significant period is anybody's guess. Opposition members in the House kept pestering Mr. Churchill for a more complete statement, but he consistently refused. At one time, the Speaker of the House had to intervene to restore order. The RAF was over Western Germany Germany last night in strong force. Ten bombers are missing. It is the first time the British bombers had been out since Thursday when they attacked the submarine building yards at Flensburg. Berlin Radio claims the bombing was militarily foolish 
and again claimed that only residential property was hit. British circles said that Germany was going to run out of residential districts as they kept claiming British bombs hit nothing but houses all the time. That'll be all right with the British. Two American boys were among those vetted for Royal Air Force Award for gallantry announced this morning. William Baker, a member of the 3rd Eagle Squadron who hails from Temple, Texas, received the Distinguished Flying Cross. A Distinguished Flying Medal went to William Bent, whose home is in Grand White, West Virginia. Bent is a bomber pilot in the Canadian Air Force. Baker has destroyed two and probably destroyed one other enemy craft while flying his Spitfire over the continent. Bent received his award for bringing his bomber back from an attack on the Ruhr last month. Month. He got the bomber home despite engine trouble, which forced him to fly through flak and searchlights with only 2,000 feet altitude. This is Bill Downs returning you to CBS New York. And that was London. For the latest developments in our own nation's capital, we take you now to CBS Washington. John Purcell reporting. The war in the Pacific has taken the headlines this morning. American air power is being used widely in what appears to be the forerunner of an intensive drive to sweep the Japs out of the Aleutians. Army bombers protected by fighter craft are continually pounding Japanese installations in Kiska. These planes are operating from the newly occupied Andranoff Islands, only one hour flying time from the Japanese-held base. And in the Solomons, Army, Navy, and Marine planes are striking hard at enemy bases and supply lines. Despite our efforts, however, the Japs have landed small reinforcements on Guadalcanal under cover of darkness. Their main objective is the airfield on the island, which now gives us air supremacy in that area. Sharp skirmishes with enemy patrols have been frequent, the Navy announces, but the Marines are maintaining their positions determined to hold the airfield at all costs. The Japanese, in the past few days, have attempted to bomb the field in a softening-up prelude to land attacks. They made two attempts, on September 29th and again last Friday. But American fighter planes were too much for them. In the first attack, our planes shot down four enemy fighters and forced the Jap bombers to unload their explosives before they could reach the objective. Then on Friday, U.S. planes broke up another attacking party, and the Japs were forced to flee without dropping any bombs. Since September 29th, American planes have carried out eight raids in a four-day period. They have been bombing and strafing enemy positions on Guadalcanal and carrying out attacks against small craft bringing troops and supplies ashore. In addition, they've been ranging over the nearby islands, bombing Jap supply lines that are being strengthened for a mass attack against Guadalcanal. One contingent of dive bombers attacked four Japanese destroyers south of New Georgia Island last Thursday. The Navy reports damage to one of the destroyers. Our box score on the Solomons now stands at 219 Jap planes destroyed and 29 ships sunk or damaged. In the Aleutians area, U.S. planes and submarines have damaged or sunk 38 enemy vessels. And last night, the community on Warchest Drive got underway throughout the nation with an appeal by President Roosevelt. Speaking over the radio, the president declared that this year, Americans must help not only their own neighbors, but also stretch a hand clasp of hope and courage across the seas. Your giving will provide not only strength for our nation at war, he said, but proof in a world of violence and greed that the American people keep faith with democracy, that we hold inviolate our belief in the infinite worth of the individual human being. This is John Purcell in Washington returning you to CBS in New York. Just before hearing direct from Moscow, a story from Toronto says that Premier Mitchell Hepburn of Ontario 
calls for the immediate removal of the ban on the Communist Party in Canada. And now for the news direct from the Russian capital, we take you to CBS Moscow, Larry Lesseur reporting. The Germans don't seem to be able to find the answer to Stalingrad. The Red Army is fighting for Stalin's main city, the way it fought for Lenin's city and for Moscow. Yesterday, the three German divisions concentrated near Stalingrad's modern factory and housing development followed the time-honored military methods for bursting through the enemy. First, they battered the Red Army lines with artillery and trench mortars. Then they pounded them with high and low altitude bombers. Then they launched an attack with a regiment supported by tanks. When this failed, they tried it with two regiments. Getting nowhere, they used the whole division. Finally, the Germans withdrew and went into a huddle. During the night, the gunboats of the Volga fleet moved close inshore and gave the Germans a savage pounding. Nevertheless, the Army newspaper Red Star today indulged in some outspoken criticism of unnamed Red Army commanders who have refused to learn anything new from this war. Those whom the German surprise methods continue to surprise, and those who blindly believe in sheer weight of men and equipment and not in skill. The Army newspaper warned that it was superfluous to say that the Red Army will never suffer such uneducated braggarts. Today, Moscow is smiling at a cartoon in today's Pravda entitled, The Meeting of the Military Experts on the Question of the Second Front. It shows two smart-looking young Anglo-American officers named General Decision and General Courage. They are pointing to a map on a table where six old fogies are sitting fat-bottomed old officers with long, walrus mustaches. These old officers are named General, maybe we'll be beaten. General, is it worth the risk? General, no need to hurry. General, let's think it over. And General, maybe something will go wrong. There's a calendar on the wall, and it's turned to October 1942. And a wall clock is ticking away the minutes, and already points to half past 11. And that was a cartoon in today's Pravda. This is our necessary journey now to Columbia in New York. And that was Moscow. Wendell Wilkie spent six hours in conference with Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek last night, and he was up early today for another crowded schedule. His talk with the Generalissimo was the fourth in an unprecedented series, and was the longest ever granted to a foreign personage by the Chinese leader. The Chinese press continued to feature Wilkie's visit with long accounts of his activities and editorial comment. Ta Kung Pao reported that a plan was underway to rename one of Chungking's main streets, Wilkie Street. Wilkie brought sunshine to foggy Chungking, the paper said. After an early breakfast, Wilkie visited a number of war plants and then returned to his quarters for a rest before lunch. Ta Kung Pao, in a strongly worded editorial, expressed the hope that Wilkie would inform President Roosevelt and the American public of China's plea for the abrogation of extraterritorial rights and foreign concessions. Wilkie is a straightforward, sincere man who has won the friendship of everyone, the editorial said. But when we shake his hand, there is still the pain hidden deep in our hearts. Here we are, a member of the anti-aggression front, and we have been taking a beating longer than anybody else. And yet, while fighting for a common cause, our hands are still shackled by chains imposed by our friends in the last 100 years. It is very difficult to understand, goes on the editorial, why the Allies still give us unequal treatment. While Mr. Wilkie is here, we would like to make known this feeling on the part of the entire nation, its people, the army, and the government.
President Roosevelt's special representative paused in his fact-finding schedule long enough to express the hope that Premier Joseph Stalin's letter to Henry Cassidy of the Associated Press in Moscow would bring Russia's imperative needs forcefully to the attention of the peoples of the United Nations. Wilkie made the terse comment in response to a request for his views on Stalin's statement that a second front was of first-rate importance and that the Allies could best help Russia by fulfilling their obligations fully and on time. Last night was the third night in succession that Wilkie had conferred with Chiang Kai-shek and their fourth meeting. It was believed the Generalissimo took Wilkie into his confidence on matters of common concern to the United Nations, including the war with Japan and methods of speeding an Allied victory. It was considered likely that the Chinese leader repeated to Wilkie his view that the Pacific Front should be regarded as equally as important as the European Front. The question of India's status probably came in for discussion. Wilkie, who was planning to visit some sectors of the Chinese battlefront, now comparatively quiet, arranged to visit a number of government plants today. And President William H. Green of the American Federation of Labor pleaded today for greater cooperation and understanding between labor and management in the war effort, because for both industry and labor, this is truly a war of self-preservation, a war for survival. There is a crying need today for better teamwork, said Mr. Green. A small number of Jap prisoners possibly the first to reach this country, has arrived at a Pacific Northwest port. They were handed over to Army authorities and will be interned at an undisclosed place. According to the Seattle Post Intelligencer, a dramatic story, not yet officially released, lies behind their capture and arrival here. The Japs walked with bowed heads before debarking, taking great pains not to be photographed. And that's the story from the Pacific Coast. There are new reports of unrest in occupied Europe this morning. A Vichy radio broadcast says that a state of siege has been proclaimed in the Trondheim district of Norway following renewed sabotage there. Norwegians in London are unable to confirm the report, but they say the siege order had been expected because Trondheim has been the scene of repeated fights between workers and Nazi guards. Reports out of Germany add that a serious quarrel among the Norwegian Quislings has arisen because of a German demand that they enlist to fight for the Nazis on the Eastern Front. Other stories from Berlin received in neutral Sweden say that relations between Germany and Denmark are in the crisis stage. It's reported that German military control is being strengthened in Denmark and that a new occupation commander, to be named shortly, probably will be a Gestapo chief. Elsewhere on the continent, it's rumored that Hitler is planning to form a so-called Germanic Federated State by annexing most of the occupied countries. London hears that the Nazis, in their latest drive for slave labor, have incorporated northern Slovenia and Yugoslavia into the Reich. And one late report from Vichy says at least 10 high officials of the labor ministry resigned today in protest against the Laval plan to conscript French labor. Once again, Columbia's correspondents have reported the latest news direct by transoceanic shortwave radio. This morning, you heard from Bill Downs in London, John Purcell in Washington, and Larry Lasseur in Moscow. Harry Marble reporting for CBS World News. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. <laughs>